Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. Today I'm here with Donald Stevens to talk about his new book, Mexico in the Time of Cholera. The book takes as its center the 1833 cholera epidemic that devastated the newly independent republic, but Stevens is not primarily concerned with a history of the disease itself. Following archival trails within parish records, novels, and memoirs, Stevens asked how we might be able to measure everyday piety in four Mexican cities during a time of transition and crisis. In so doing, his book offers an intimate window into the life cycle of urban Mexicans from birth and naming practices to death and burial norms. Donald Stevens is an associate professor of history at Drexel University and an assistant editor for the journal The Americas. He is the author of Origins of Instability in Early Republican Mexico and the editor of Based on a True Story, Latin American History at the Movies. He is here with me today to talk about his most recent book, Mexico in the Time of Cholera, published in 2019 by the University of New Mexico Press. Thank you for joining us, Donald. I want to start just with a very basic question, which is where did this project come from? How did you end up writing a history centered on the cholera epidemic of 1833? Well, uh, everything for historians is a long story. Um, I think it's uh, important to go back to to college. Actually, you'll see, you'll see that um, maybe later. Um, but I had no intention of being a history major. Uh, I thought I knew what history was, and I thought I had AP credits. So I thought I'll never have to take another history class. Um, but what I discovered in is that history wasn't what it was in high school. It, instead, it was a way of asking questions, uh, finding evidence, and evaluating the evidence. So um, I, I was raised in a religious household, um, but I found that uh, that being a historian became my religion. And uh, as a history major... I was required to take a course in something that wasn't Europe or the United States. And I had uh, studied a little Spanish um, starting in the fifth grade in order to get out of the regular classroom. And uh, so Latin American history kind of made made sense. And uh, I enjoyed what I was doing so much that I, I decided to try graduate school. And of course, we were told that there weren't any jobs and there wouldn't be any jobs. And uh I figured I'd just keep doing it as long as I could, you know, as long as it was still fun. And uh, so I ended up, I had read an article by John Coatsworth about railroads and the concentration of of landholding in 19th century Mexico. And I thought it was amazing. This was just about the time that uh, Fogel and Engerman's Time on the Cross came out. So quantitative history was quite uh, controversial, and I thought, well, I, I should, I should understand this. And uh, Coatsworth was teaching a graduate 
class in quantitative history, which I remember <laughs> taking. I was very skeptical, uh, but it was also a, a, an important experience to me because I, I came out a convert. And, and since then, I've looked at everything as a question of, of measurement. Um, how, do you, how do you know? How can you measure whether something is big or small? Um, so in my, in my first book, um, I had uh, lots of tables. I had tests of statistical significance. And I got it done in time to be tenured and promoted to associate professor. And then I had to figure out what else to do. Um, and this was around 1991. Um, when cholera returned to the Western Hemisphere for the first time in 100 years. Um, in fact, it was more like 150 years for Mexico. So people were saying, well, this is a 19th century disease. And I thought, uh, I'm, I'm a 19th century historian. Why don't I know anything about cholera? Um, I was wandering through my... Uh, local independent bookstore looking for something to read on my way uh, to Mexico uh, in this trying to figure out what to do next stage when I found Charles Rosenberg's book called The Cholera Years. It was uh, really a fascinating book. Uh, It was about the United States, but I learned a lot about cholera, and I thought, well, maybe I could do something like this uh, for Mexico. And that's how it started out, and of course not how it ended up, and it ended up being something not very much like Rosenberg's book at all, but at least that explains why cholera. That's great. Um, and so, you know, the the book is does take place during the cholera d- epidemic, but in one of your guiding concerns, one of your principal concerns is, in fact, a religious question, is how how religious were everyday Mexicans and how seriously did they take their religion? So where did those two come together for you? Well, it's, uh, again, in the, in the first book, I was, I didn't mention, but, but I was trying to explain the political instability after independence. And, or at, rather than trying to explain it, I was trying to evaluate other people's explanations. And in the process, I convinced myself that uh, Mexican society uh, was very different in different places in the country. And um, I knew from reading other historians that uh, by the end of the 19th century, Um, Mexican historians basically agreed that the Mexican people were fundamentally Catholic, that that was an essential identifying characteristic of of Mexicans. For conservatives, this was clearly just a matter of of faith. That's what they thought. That's because it justified their position. For liberals, it was more a a resignation that that's the way it was that they were using that as as an explanation about why they hadn't been able to accomplish more. Um, And it seemed to me that they actually had uh, accomplished quite a lot and that uh, their difficulties were not entirely of their own making, that it wasn't. uh, It's often argued that it was just personalism and individual uh, decisions that that govern the uh, the politics of this period and I, I didn't think that was true but I, I wanted to know uh, 
if there wasn't a way to figure out how religious people were, to measure how religious they were. And um, that's part of where, where this comes from, is again, looking at what other people have said or indications of religiosity among their Mexican people. For example, the the uh, fact that they give their children lots of names of saints uh, has been used as evidence. Um, but it's also uh, the fact that uh, with a new epidemic in particular, it's a disruption of normal life and it increases people's fear and makes them maybe think that, that God is punishing them. And at least I, I was reading things once I started doing this that said that people did start behaving better. Um, they returned stolen property. They reconciled with spouses that they had been separated from, that sort of thing. And uh, so it seemed to me that if, if there is a cholera epidemic, that would probably mark uh, a high watermark of, of religious fervor. And there are a very, a very small number of other historians of cholera who ever mentioned anything like that. But I thought, well, okay, time to, to see what I can do with this. Do you find in that a kind of popular religiosity or is that, um, to your mind, a sign of things changing? Well, again, I, uh, I think it's important to point out that I wasn't dealing with absolute, you know, any sense of, of really popular other than the fact that you can clearly distinguish uh, in the parish registers in this period the elite from the, the common people. But these are all urban people in, in four different parishes um, in Mexico. So it's really not a, uh, a study of popular religiosity. But uh, the, there is a distance between what the Catholic Church wanted people to be doing and what they wanted to do and what they were doing. So um, that was that was part of uh, taking things seriously that other people hadn't taken seriously, like the baby names. And so you end up with a number of really interesting stories. And there's a, there's a real intimacy to the stories you tell, because you're looking at not just how people name their children, but under what conditions they... Um, they get inscribed in the register and how they, in some cases, even how they formed relationships with priests or navigated between partners and parents. So how did you approach this kind of intimate source space in writing a history book? And um, the second part of that question is, do you have a favorite story or, or episode that you want to talk about? <laughs> well, well, the first part is harder because I don't know what the answer to that question is. So let me start with the second part, and maybe we can find a way of, of working ourselves uh, around to being able to, it's always to answer the first question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So the question I can answer is uh, about my my favorite stories. Many of my favorite stories are about Concha Lombardo. Uh, in fact, I, I dedicated a whole chapter to her. But of all her stories, my favorite is that when she was 15 years old, she began to be courted by a man named Agustin Franco, who was about 10 years older than she was. And uh, Concha thought he was a bit of a dandy. And 
but she liked that he was educated and sophisticated. And he would write her uh, letters every day. And a servant in her house would smuggle them in and hide them under her pillow so she would find them in the morning. Uh, and she loved this process and, and, and eagerly wrote back to him. So every evening when he would come to call on her, uh, which was, of course, under the, in the house under the supervision of her parents, um, he would take the letters that she had written to him out of his pocket, and he would point out all her errors. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, this is kind of startling. Uh, but I, what I love about this story is her reaction to his pedantry. It was not what I would have expected. She loved it. She was so eager to learn that if if she hadn't been eager to learn, she might never have written her memoir uh, because she certainly wasn't getting much out of the schooling uh, that she received. Um, so the, the memoir is the source of all of the rest of her wonderful stories about what it was like growing up in the middle of the 19th century in Mexico. And she um, she doesn't end up marrying him, does she? Oh no! Uh, <laughs> her adventures do not end with no, um, that's, uh, schooling and letter writing. No, no. Fortunately, her parents were were you know they they were very lenient with her in comparison with her mother and her grandmother, the way they had been um, married off. So her parents were giving her room to figure things out for themselves, but they actually figured it out before she did, that this guy was no good for her. Uh, he really was um, not the right man for her. And uh, it wasn't just that he was 10 years older. He was um, very uh, controlling. And uh, so they took a dislike to him even before she did. And that's that's a very interesting um, sort of difference to what we might expect would happen um, looking back on a marriage from that time? Well, there, there, there were lots of different ways uh, for marriages to be worked out. And, um, you know, again, going back to my, you know, the essential quantitative nature of the way that I think uh, this 10-year age gap to me became kind of a benchmark uh, where I actually found that, you know, for the, the marriage records are very good about reporting the ages and the previous marital status of the brides and grooms who are being married. So you can't always get the level of detail that I could get from, from Concha Lamardo's stories, but you can look at this gap between the bride and the groom and, uh, you know, when a girl is uh, 12 years and two months old and she's marrying somebody who's three decades older, that that's not her idea of, of what she wants to be doing. Uh, so that, that that's a way of measuring um, what, I, what I ended up labeling the difference between patriarchal marriages and companion and uh, I don't remember what term I used anymore but but that kind of a thing um, the fiction in this period is also something that um, that I really had a lot of fun with I didn't realize that there were so many um, 
novels and short stories written uh, during these years in Mexico. And of course, many of them are, are romantic stories, but, um, you know, they give you a lot of, of different ideas about what people thought were realistic um, stories about romance and marriage. So uh, that was fun. <laughs> That is, that is one of the one of my favorite kinds of historical sources. So you mentioned at some point in the book that you got some advice when you were writing this book, um, and so was it was it about those sources? Is that no? It wasn't about the sources. So well, actually, one bit of advice was that uh, I, I, I remember very clearly. I don't know who it was. I wish I could remember, but um, someone, not a historian. Uh, at one of the meetings I attended, said that historians really ought to read more fiction. And I said, okay. And so I emailed the person and said, okay, what, this is the period I'm working on. What do you suggest? I never heard back. Uh, but I did manage to find a lot of things on my own to read. Now, the, 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 the advice, the best advice I got while I was working on this was absolutely the essential advice. It was after five or no, six or seven years, I'd been at this for a while. I'd had a couple of um, large research grants where, I, of course, I promised that I was going to finish this up. Um, but I was frustrated because I couldn't figure out how to organize it, and it, it wasn't making sense together. And, and I had dinner with a colleague um, who had said to me, she said, being an associate professor means that you can take as long as you want to finish the book. And uh, I realized she was right. And I relaxed and I stopped worrying about the fact that it wasn't finished yet and just kept working on things. And so I probably spent another 20 years after that. I was probably taking her advice too far. Um, Certainly, uh, one acquisition editor believed that uh, that I was never going to finish. She was so frustrated um, that she actually wrote me a, a letter saying that there probably wouldn't even be any books anymore by the time I finished. <laughs> I've never heard of anyone doing <laughs> And yet here we are. There is someone who is famous for her patience and in people's acknowledgments. <laughs> anyway, so that uh, I had been doing other things. I was chairing uh, the department for a while and editing a journal. And uh, but uh, the antidote to that advice was that eventually my department uh, chair told me that if I didn't send the manuscript out, he was going to increase my teaching load. And I said, okay, that's, that's a serious threat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of something that I had been telling uh, my colleagues when I was the department. I said, you, you can't wait until you think it's finished to send it out. Even if they tell you they want a complete manuscript, you can't, you can't wait. Um, because uh, you want to send it out with some obvious flaws because that's what the reviewers will tell you to fix. And meanwhile, while they're taking their time to read it and doing all of the other things they normally do and writing their report and 
all of that time is time that you can spend fixing those flaws. So it was, it was clearly time to finish it up. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you did end up structuring the book. Um, because you, you follow different kind of moments in a life cycle where people might interact with um, the church or the record or leave a written trace of their decision making. Um, so how did you how did you come to the organize your work this way? Even in graduate school, I remember I was I was in fact writing my dissertation, and uh, my committee said, "Well, just just stop messing around with this. Write it in chronological order." And I thought, "No, that's not how." I can't do that because it's not something, this in, in particular is a moment and it has aspects to it, but you can't write it in chronological order. That doesn't make any sense. So I never really understood that. Um, so we didn't always know that the birth, the book would be structured from as a progression from birth to marriage to death. But that was one of the best moments in the whole process when I had that idea. And it made it possible to write transitions between chapters that kept the book moving. Um, I actually began with the burial records. And it was my concern about their accuracy that led me to marriages and baptisms. My friends told me, for example, that they that people were dying so quickly that the priests were overwhelmed. They couldn't keep up, so they shouldn't believe the numbers in the, in the records were accurate. Now, I knew from reading the burial records that there were a lot of people who were dying, and a lot of them could not be identified since they might die. The cholera killed so quickly, often within hours of the first symptoms, that people could die somewhere and nobody would know who they were, and they were they would just be found, their bodies would be found along the road. Um, but I knew that the priests were writing down basic descriptions of age, gender, race, when they had a body that they couldn't identify. So I thought, well, that's a pretty good indication that they're being complete. And I started to think about what other kind of evidence there might be that the priests were were so overwhelmed. Most of the time, a cholera epidemic uh, lasted about four weeks uh, from the beginning, gradual beginning to the tapering off. Um, so I could identify when those periods were. I started looking at the baptisms and the marriages to see if maybe they postponed those because they were too busy. And um, once I started reading all those babies' names and looking at the ages at which men and women married, the uh, the differences between the parishes, I was just fascinated, and it, it became a much broader uh, investigation of, of religion. And the, and the parish records uh, were kept a little bit differently in, in different places. And that is a frustration for demographic historians, but uh, I thought that it was, it was great because it really showed that the relationship between the priest and the parishioners was different in different places. So how did you end up picking the parishes that you did? Because this is a book that, as you say, is is about urban areas in Mexico, but it's it's not just Mexico City. You have several different locations. Well, 
Mexico City, there were are actually four cities where I spent uh, a lot of time uh, working on their on their records. Four parishes, um, and Mexico City is essential. You you know sometimes uh, Mexico City is all there is to Mexico in some in some books, uh, but it's essential. So I had to have Mexico. Uh, but then I thought too that Puebla seemed to to be another obvious choice because it was Mexico's second largest city. And for personal reasons, it was important. I had a friend from graduate school there who could help me with introductions and, uh, and advice. I also spent some time, I had spent a lot of time in Mexico city and I was using this as an excuse, this project as an excuse to get out of Mexico city and, and go some other places. Um, so uh, I spent some time traveling around, and I remember one August I nearly froze in Zacatecas. It was so cold, and I said, "Okay, that's that's enough. <laughs> I'm not going back there." <laughs> but uh, Oaxaca was a beautiful city, and uh, it, it wasn't the, as touristy as it is now, but it's it's be, you know been discovered and is is a wonderful place. They were also very hospitable archivists and uh, just a wonderful food. So that was, that was a good reason, but it was also the hometown for two of of Mexico's most important 19th century presidents, Benito Juarez and Porfirio Diaz were, were each of them were raised there. So that makes it a, a place that's important to understand. And then for the fourth city, I was in some ways just just lucky. I knew that San Luis Potosi was the first major city in the interior of the country to have a cholera epidemic. But unlike the others, it wasn't, uh, there was no bishop in San Luis Potosi in this period. This was part of the bishop, uh, Bishop of uh, Valladolid, which is today Morelia and Michoacan. So this was a city that was far away from its bishop. Um, and in fact, for most of the period that I was I was studying, there there was no bishop, so it it might have been taken as a place that would have been a little more uh, it distant. It was at the time considered oh, way up north in Mexico, uh, but it wasn't until I'd been working on it for a while that I realized how distinctly unlike the other cities it was, uh, both in the term, in, in terms of the development of modern cemeteries. But one of the other remarkable things was just how intrusive the clergy were there. Uh, they were really, uh, they, they encouraged marriage at, at younger ages, not, you know, not, unreasonably young, but a larger percentage of their parishioners were married when they were younger rather than older. And uh, it wasn't until later that I found that San Luis Potosi had been the home of Francisco Estrada, one of the authors of the, I found only three memoirs from this period. And he was, he was one of the authors. He was from San Luis Potosi. So he had some pretty good stories too. Well, thank you so much. So, um, I one of the questions that I wanted to ask you since we were since we're recording this in a time of 
epidemic um, in the United States is, um, do you think this book um, has things to teach us about what life is like in times of epidemics um, or any kind of lessons that we can take um, from the present day? Well, I have to say I'm uh, overall agnostic about whether we learn anything or can learn anything from the past, in part because there are so many differences between Mexico in 1833 and where we are in 2020. They're just incredible differences. Um, there was no germ theory, for example, in 1833. Uh, Pasteur wouldn't be doing his ex- famous experience for a couple of decades. And it wasn't until near the end of the 19th century that, that medical science figured out that the, the understanding of cholera that we have today uh, as a bacterial uh, infection. Um, on the other hand, as a, a quantitative historian, one place I think I have an informed opinion is the question of how many people are dying today. It's always problematic to rely on medical professionals to come up with the cause of death. They're very stressed. They're doing the best they can but they're inevitably going to miss some people. So when you see news about estimates of death rather than recorded deaths, believe the estimates. They're a measure of how many people, more people are are dying unexpectedly uh, compared to the seasons in past years when we did not have a, a new epidemic. I had to invent this kind of a measure for myself since many of the documents that I used did not include a cause of death. And it, it became clear to me that even when a cause was specified, that the records were missing many people who had probably died of cholera, but were not specifically designated as cholera victims. There were circumstances that I learned to read in the, in the records that could tell me uh, that somebody probably died of cholera even before. But the histories of this period always rely on a medical professional, a doctor who can say, well, this was the, this individual is the first victim in this city. And I'm, I'm skeptical about that as well. Another consistency I can see is the uncertainty and, and fear uh, during an epidemic, especially when it's a new disease. Two other members of, of my household work in some of the best hospitals in the country, because um, I, I live in Philadelphia and we have great hospitals here. So we had a little advanced warning about how bad this was going to be. But still, the best medical advice changed from one day to the next when it came to the question of whether most people needed to wear masks, for example. And that seems to me to be a normal problem when scientists confront a disease that is new to them. And we're also living through a time when science, unfortunately, uh, is not given the respect it deserves by many people, including powerful uh, individuals in our own government. And so we're living through an extraordinary time that is both uncertain and stressful. So one thing that I, I have found helps me is a statement by Orhan Pamuk, a a Turkish uh, Nobel Prize winner for literature, uh, who wrote, in time, I feel less ashamed of my fear. 
and increasingly come to see it as a perfectly sensible response. I remind of that adage about pandemics and plagues that those who are afraid live longer. That's the end of his quote. Um, So I worry about people who are not sufficiently afraid. I think they don't understand the gravity of the situation. And I work at reminding myself that fear is a perfectly sensible response. Those are wise words. Yeah, that that's really um, striking. So um, I'm glad that you that you brought in the words of a writer because I think uh, one of the things that's so interesting about your book is coming from someone who's is really quantitative. This book is so full of stories. Um, and it's so full of um, the the sort of texture and emotion and drama of everyday life, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I, I just want to compliment you on on combining those things for, very well because I it, from my own work I feel like that's quite difficult to do to get a sense of number and measure and also humanity. Thank you. So I guess that brings me to my next question, which is, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I have to have things to work on in order to distract myself from from the present. But uh, I have uh, two book projects I'm working on at the moment. One is a a collection of essays about Latin American history and feature films. It's a a sequel to my 1997 collection based on a true story, Latin American history at the movies. Um, The second project is something more of a prequel to my book on cholera. I'm interested in knowing more about some of those 18th century bishops that I I met while writing the cholera book. There's a a tension between their religious sensibilities and the options for, for ways of being Catholic in this period. In the late 18th century, during the, this, the period we call the enlightenment, uh, that's, end up being cut off in the 19th century when the Catholic Church, and particularly the Catholic Church in Mexico, becomes much more uh, conservative. So I was really intrigued to, to find these, uh, these uh, bishops and to see what they're thinking and you know the contrast between them. Some of that actually was another part of what I had to do once the reviewers read the book. They said, okay, <laughs> you have plenty of uh, digressions in here, but you're, you're telling me too much about some of this. So I could just take some of that out, and immediately I had another book if, you know, started. Uh, so I'm, I'm interested in, in this period. I'm still interested in some questions regarding disease, particularly smallpox. Uh, and burials uh, that were mentioned in the uh, in the cholera book, but uh, I'm uh, technically on sabbatical now. Even though I'm spending my sabbatical in my house, uh, I'd rather be in the archives in Spain or Mexico. But uh, I have to say too about your your question of combining. Uh, quantitative, or your comment about combining quantitative and and qualitative sources is uh, one of the things that I I learned with my first book 
is that if you have too many tables and too many numbers and tests of significance, I, I learned to put all of that stuff into the notes. In fact, there aren't any tables, not even in the notes. So I was hoping that I would be able to describe things well enough that I wouldn't need the tables. But I knew that if someone opens up a book with tables, most people who open a book with tables will just put it right back down again. So I was trying to avoid that. And uh, I did everything I could to, uh, you know, partly the, the title is ambiguous. And that's actually created its own sort of problems. But I wanted to write a book that people might um, pick up not knowing what it was about and then uh, say, well, this looks kind of interesting rather than something that had a typical title that sounds academic and uh, makes most people just want to put it down. So it wasn't successful in uh, becoming a trade book, but uh, at least it may be something that undergraduates can read without uh, (laughs) complaining too much. Yeah, I think in terms of teaching undergraduates what sort of textures of life in a place they might not otherwise be able to imagine, I think it um, would serve as a very good teaching tool in that way. And well, I'm I'm fascinated by your second project. I like the idea of a sort of moment of of opening up in the the religious world of Mexico in the 18th century. um, That then in some ways it sounds like maybe gets foreclosed by independence. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That sounds like a really great project. Well, thank you so much, uh, Donald, for talking to us about this book. And um, yeah, I I hope that we can do so again when your next book comes out. I would like to. Thank you very much. Thank you.